Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to travel with a film crew to Sri Lanka. Take a look now at my journey, just three months after the Easter Sunday terrorist bombings. Tell me about the morning that you realized your city is being bombed, your beautiful hotels. Where were you? Actually, I was flight, just about to board a flight. Uh, I was at the Dubai International Airport when um, I had a protocol officer from the mission that was escorting me to um, the uh, gate when she got the message. I was in a state of shock. It was, it was a day that I would like to forget. Even though it was Easter Sunday, which is a very special day for me as a Christian, we look forward to Easter Sunday. And I landed hoping to go for the evening service, and there was no evening service. This is a difficult conversation for the religious groups because it is a radical element of Islamism that has claimed responsibility. How do you navigate the interfaith harmony? Practically every Christian leader came out with, with calmness and uh, got people to act properly. And uh, true Christianity was um, displayed. It was very evident in how the Christian community basically um, uh, came together in a situation like this. And I must say Sri Lanka being a predominantly Buddhist country, the Buddhist Mahanayaka Theros and the clergy uh, came together. Uh, also the Muslim leaders, the clergy, uh, came together and they not only denounced, they condemned the uh, incident. Uh, because they, they had absolutely nothing to do with it. So did the Hindu clergy and the religious heads. So there was a lot of interfaith harmony in trying to you know, bring back normalcy and support each other, which was a fabulous um, element that I, I saw as the mayor, because the beauty of the Colombo city is there is a multicultural, multi-religious factor. And how has that happened? What was the secret of making that harmony happen? We came together, uh, you know, we went to the church, the Colombo municipality donated 25 million to the cardinal to rebuild the St. Anthony's church. Uh, we have been there with the people, we have been in the hospitals, we've been supporting the families. You know, it's the people and it's the mindset and attitude of the people that they want to, you know, make it uh, happen, to live in peace and harmony, to live as one. And I think it's also the leadership that we give uh, to the people uh, on the ground. To, to live together without dividing people, you know. Miriam Young is the executive director of the U.S. Council on Sri Lanka. She has traveled and worked extensively in Sri Lanka over 25 years. She's based in Washington, D.C. Miriam, let's talk about the fact that the U.S. government warned Sri Lanka that the Easter bombings were imminent. What can you tell us about that back and forth that went on? Well, I think um, the U.S., uh, as well as, you know, other countries, specifically India, um, had given their warning to uh, officials in the, in the Sri Lankan government. But uh, as um, it has come out since um, this horrible attack, the Sri Lankan government is, is in a state of, or has been in a state of um, disrepair, uh, a falling out of the of the coalition that uh, came into power in 2015, and because of the
the break and the rivalries um, between the parties and the officials, um, particularly the president and the prime minister, a lot of these warnings were just not passed on. The prime minister and the president are from opposing parties, correct? And they need to communicate, and they were not yes. communicating. Yes, and the origin of this is that uh, last fall there was an attempted, uh, it's really being called a coup, by the president. Um, and he tried to bring in a different, he tried to sack the prime minister, bring in someone else from his party. Um, and that coup failed, but it left the, this coalition in really complete disarray. The ramifications of people not talking to people in places of power are really seen when you realize there was so many warnings started 10 days before, very clearly, bombings at Catholic churches on Easter Sunday. All of it got um, overlooked. Absolutely. So let's talk about how this will affect Sri Lanka's delicate democracy. Has the bombing set us back even further on the democracy they're rebuilding post-Civil War? Democracy was already uh, really um, coming undone uh, before this happened, and the coup is obviously um, a prime example of that. You know, many of the democratic institutions in the country started to disintegrate slowly and consistently over the course of the war. And th then alternate parties were um, in power during that war, so they both uh, bear responsibility. And this fall, they have another election. Those new elections coming up, what should we expect? This concept of um, the need for a strong man as leader, for being really tough on law and order and terrorism, is going to become very popular, and it's going to certainly be used by the candidates. But it's also something of great concern. So there has been um, such a traumatic history in this ancient land. Over 100,000 civilians mm -hmm. killed in the Civil War. The tsunami took over 30,000 mm -hmm. lives. Now the bombings. How would you describe uh, the democracy that's grown out of the trauma? Well, uh, you you describe it well because um, this you know small country has really gone through um, many many pretty serious tragedies, and and so its kind of democratic system, uh, which was uh, really put in place uh, at independence when the British granted independence, um, it the 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 difficulties in Sri Lanka have to do with the the very complex makeup of its population and and the history of those different groups and Miriam what we're learning and, on this show what we're learning on this show about that complexity is we just have to keep having incredible conversations about what it is to live side by side in democracy and in neighborly love Okay, here's a key issue on neighborly love. The ripple effect mm -hmm. of instability, political instability, is always refugees. You know, and we are at this great crisis in the world Perhaps, now, 26 yes. million people looking for a home. Is the situation of refugee recovery um, beyond repair now for Sri Lanka on how they are going to help the refugees in their midst? 
Well, it's, it's a pretty gloomy picture at the moment, but I, I don't think that it's beyond repair. I really don't. And the, um, the refugees who have come to Sri Lanka from surrounding countries in South Asia, especially the Ahmadis, who um, are such a tiny minority in Pakistan, um, you know, they fled their own oppression, and now they are unfortunately becoming uh, targets and pawns in this new conflict in Sri Lanka. So, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, really. But I think um, that one ca can never give up. Thank you. We, too, have hope. We're going to show a great example of how we can get engaged in caring for the vulnerable. But Miriam Young from the U.S. Council on Sri Lanka. You joined us from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Miriam. You're very welcome. Thank you. Our next guest's documentary work on Sri Lanka was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Callum McRae's film, No Fire Zone, was produced in association with London's Channel 4. No Fire Zone is a film that exposes war crimes that occurred when Sri Lanka's brutal civil war ended in 2009. Hi, Callum. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think you're the best navigator to explain to our audience how Sri Lanka's identity politics was formed and why it is so deeply rooted. Help us understand Tamil, Sinhalese, and then the religious interplay on, behind that. Talking as an outsider uh, and looking in on it, um, it's very clear uh, that um, in, the, in the aftermath of independence, uh, what you saw was systematic discrimination uh, by the Sinhalese majority against the Tamil population. And it's that Sinhalist majoritarian uh, belief and conviction that Sri Lanka is a Sinhalese country, which basically underlies what has happened ever since. Um, uh, the discrimination of the Catholics was intense. It was in terms of, uh, of education, uh, in, in terms of, uh, of job opportunities. Uh, it was very, very systematic. Um, and initially, the, the Tamils resisted with uh, following Gandhian principles and nonviolent disobedience. Um, but eventually, when that was all met with very, very serious repression, you saw the emergence of um, various uh, armed Tamil militias, uh, of which the most uh, uh, powerful, uh, the most brutal, uh, uh, and the most effective were the, the Tamil Tigers. Um, and that uh, began what was effectively a 25-year war. So the recent Easter bombings show that the tensions are still so high in the country. Why do you think the Sri Lankan military did not act on the warnings about the Easter Sunday bombings that they were given? It is certainly very, very curious and deeply concerning, their failure to act, because they had very clear intelligence uh, that something uh, was afoot, that, that there was a threat. Certainly the effect has been that uh, the Sri Lankan government has had, uh, had the excuse to reinforce even further than before the entire panoply of legislation which they use to control the population and to control the minorities. Uh, ironically, um, the violence against, uh, against Christians in the past um, was actually perpetuated and has been over the last few years since the end of the war been perpetuated by the Sinhalese monks. Uh, uh, the same monks, they're, they're called the BBS, they're a very hard right Sinhalese ultra-nationalist group of monks. And, and these monks in their, in their uh, saffron robes um, have mounted attacks, in many cases simultaneously, on both Christians and Muslims. 
there is absolutely no tradition of, of violence against, uh, uh, against Christians by Muslims at all. Um, but the culture of, of impunity, uh, the culture of violence, which is so much part of, of, of um, the legacy of the last Sri Lankan government and has failed to be challenged by the current Sri Lankan government, um, that, is, that is the root problem. And the fact that the repression and the levels of repression, anti-terrorism acts and so on, anti-terrorism legislation and so on, the, these bombings have given a huge excuse for that to be maintained uh, when the world was giving some, less than it should be, pressure on the new Sri Lankan government to carry out on its pledges to uh, improve conditions and improve human rights. Because there actually is outstanding war crimes investigation underway in Sri Lanka still from its, from its civil war, correct? <laughs> it depends what you call an investigation. If it is a serious, independent investigation designed to get to the truth and to punish those responsible for war crimes, uh, and, and particularly the absolutely shocking state-sponsored war crimes in the last few months um, of the war, in which tens of thousands of innocent civilians died, there is no, nothing even beginning to resemble a serious investigation of those crimes. Indeed, the very people accused of responsibility for those crimes, command responsibility, um, have now been promoted by the new government to be heads of the army, uh, and indeed one of the men who bears the most direct responsibility for those shocking war crimes uh, is currently standing for president, Gotabia Rajapaksa. Callum, because Mr. Rajapaksa is running, it is unlikely that they will look into the past of their war crimes and therefore uh, a culture of violence was minimized when it came to the bombings. Is that right? Uh, that is right. I mean, it, it, just, to, just so that people, people probably do realize, but you know, what actually happened at the end of the war in Sri Lanka uh, was that the Sri Lankan government declared a series of what they called no-fire zones and they encouraged around 400,000 innocent Tamil civilians to crowd into those areas where they were told they would not be bombed and they were systematically bombed, shelled, denied medical aid, denied hospital aid uh, and, and tens of thousands of them died, were massacred. Um, the scale of the crimes are, are really quite breathtaking and the lack of international knowledge about them is also quite breathtaking. The people responsible for those war crimes, those crimes against humanity, are still running the military and are one of the worst offenders is standing for election for presidency and, and might well win. Gotabia Rajapaksa, the brother of the previous president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, um, they together hold responsibility for some of the worst war crimes of this century. Uh, and there is not a hint of any kind of accountability. Uh, and the world, which was calling for accountability, is now looking away. Why? Why does the world look away from war crimes? Well, I mean, the world looks away from war crimes because they are not convenient in many cases and politically not convenient. I, I think what we saw, which was quite interesting with Sri Lanka, was that um, the world looked away and indeed in, in many ways continued to supply the arms while the war was going on, while the massacres were going on. But, and after the war, and, and during that war, President uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa spoke of the war on terror. He dressed up everything he was doing as part of the war on terror. And this is not to demean the, the, the things, that, the crimes that the LTTE committed, but he dressed up what he was doing as part of the war on terror. Once the war was over, he made a speech to the UN in which he said, the West must back off, we need our own local indigenous solutions, we need to find domestic solutions, the world must back off. And what that meant was 
that the world should stop paying attention to the war crimes, should stop paying attention to what was going on, uh, and let them get on with, with sorting things out their way. Uh, ironically, that speech claiming that the, the West was suddenly turning the West into an evil conspiracy rather than its war on terror being the justification, um, that speech was actually written for him by a, a, a Western public relations company. So you had this turning of things on their heads so that suddenly Rajapaksa regime were posing themselves as, as opponents of the West. Uh, and when that happened, um, the West was quite interested in addressing the crimes that Rajapaksa had committed. When they then succeeded in effect of creating a coalition government, getting rid of Rajapaksa briefly, although not, not, not permanently, I fear, they, they then sort of had a, a coalition government, which is now very, very weak and, 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 and is not doing anything that, that anyone was demanding in terms of human rights. So they suddenly went silent on the war crimes because they wanted to keep that government in place at the cost of ignoring the war crimes. Now, the trouble is that the cost of ignoring the war crimes is what we see now. The cost of ignoring the war crimes is the continuing repression against the Tamils. The cost of ignoring the war crimes in the aftermath of the war uh, is, is that the legislation like which is used to repress um, the, uh, the, the, the Tamils um, is, is still in place uh, and now can be used against uh, Muslims uh, and indeed against Christians. Um, so the fact that the world turned away and let Sri Lanka continue with its culture of impunity, its culture of violence, and this is the, the Sri Lankan Sinhalese government, um, is what in many ways has allowed the situation that we have now to develop. All right, Callum McRae for your film No Fire Zone. Thank you so much for the education on Sri Lanka. You're welcome. Thank you. A watchdog agency for human rights in Sri Lanka says the Easter bombings have blasted away years of hard work for freedom and human rights on the island. I sat down in Colombo with human rights activist Ruki Fernando to learn more. Uh, the Easter Sunday bombings not only blasted the churches and the hotels and the lives of the people who were dead and their families, but they also blasted long-standing struggles for human rights and social justice. We have long-standing good relations among people of different faiths and different ethnic communities. Neighbours uh, who are very helpful, supportive, they are in times of trouble, in times of joy and celebration. That tradition has been there and it is still there today in Sri Lanka. But the other very disturbing tradition of uh, largely Buddhist groups attacking Muslims, uh, Hindu groups attacking Hindu uh, Tamils attacking Christian Tamils, not just in the past, but in the last few months. We saw in the aftermath of the Easter Sunday bombings how mosques, uh, homes and business enterprises of Muslims were attacked by largely Sinhalese, Buddhist and Christians. So that indicates that there is clearly you know, tensions among uh, different faith communities. And I think we, not, we must not sweep these things under the carpet. We must acknowledge that there has been these tensions. There, we must acknowledge the large number of attacks, consistent attacks over the years against evangelical Christians and the Muslims. And then we must try to engage with all parties, including those who are suspected to be behind those attacks, to find out why they are doing it, what makes them do it. It's essential, I think, for a society to make sure that every person or every community has equal right and equal space to practice his or her religion or belief, whether it's in worship or whether it's in preaching, and also the space for people who don't identify with a particular religious tradition to be themselves. In the wake of the Easter murders, all of the Muslim parliamentarians in Sri Lanka resigned their portfolio positions. They did so because they were being targeted by hardline Buddhists who threatened a hunger strike if they would not. Saeed Ali Zahar Molana 
is a peacemaker, but he's also one of those Muslim parliamentarians. More than 2,000 innocent people also were arrested. And this is one of the reasons uh, led all of us to resign also, because, because of this particular few fellows, and there were innocent people were arrested. So you resigned over the arrest of the innocent Muslims? Not only Muslims, it's not, it's not only for the entire country, the peace being restored. What has the pressure been like against you as Muslim parliamentarians? This is something uh, very unfortunate. Um, although this particular small group of people, it's a cult, it's not Islam, it's a cult. Zahran was identified by all these Muslim theologians. He is an extreme element. He even came to attack another mosque. Then even after the incident, that the very people, the very Muslim community gave information about his family members, where they are. Beyond that, we never associate with any terrorist group. We were always for the uh, country. If ethnic and religious division is growing, what is the answer? We had to unite everybody and uh, un united men. Uh, you know, it's a multilingual, multi-religious, multicultural country. So unity in diversity, which is the key. So you have to bring everybody together towards integration and reconciliation, not by isolation and separation. We continue now along our drive into Batakaloa, a city on the eastern part of Sri Lanka, a six-hour drive from Colombo. It was near here in Katakundi that police discovered the nucleus of the terrorist space, where a well-known Islamic radical had been turned over to police by other Muslims. Local Muslims told us Zoran Hashim, a self-declared imam and the leader of an obscure Islamic terrorist group known as the National Foith Jamaat, was considered a menace. He had attacked a traditional mosque, and he also had a warrant out for his arrest. Still, Zaran traveled freely from his hometown of Katakundi to Colombo. He detonated a bomb strapped to his body inside the Shangri-La Hotel in a cafe overlooking the sea, killing 40 people. At the same time, another of Zaran's disciples circled Zion Pentecostal Church in Batakaloa. I sat down with a pastor of that church who told me the extremist was looking specifically for him. So in the news, you would have seen uh, the bomber coming into this lane that was uh, sh shown all over. So it was caught with this CCTV camera. Service had started just two minutes, 36 seconds. And uh, he blast himself. The bomb blast took place here. You can see it's all broken here. Now exactly. Can you see this? Yes. So far, 31 people had died, 86 injured. Till the last breath they had, they were in the presence of God, they were worshipping the Lord. How many children have? Hallelujah!
While the army is rebuilding Zion Church, as it has other churches that were destroyed in the bombings, Pastor Roshan and his congregation not only faced a terrorist intent on killing worshippers, he's now facing opposition from officials who want to stop the church from going forward. Obama wanted to destroy this ministry. He couldn't. And then this, some government officials in particular, they got the community to write um, petitions against us, not to give approval for renewal of this. And um, one of the officers in the religious affairs, they showed me one inch thick of petitions against us. Worst part is, there were 20 other pastors in Batiglo. They also wrote a petition to the mayor not to give approval. In the renewal process, Pastor Roshan feels he is up against the impossible. Church members are fearful to return to the original structure. All over this place, they were all, many were dead inside the church also. They heard the sound. They saw the children, they've been burnt. They saw with their eyes. Those wounds will take some time to heal. The Lord will heal the wounds. I wanted to ask you about the first Sunday. So the bomb has happened on the 21st. What did you say to them? I told them, bomb can't stop. Can't stop us going forward. When they are hurting, God is also hurting. He doesn't leave us just there. He's hurting. Our people don't want to come into this church building now. So that's where this thing comes into play. They're going to build a new church. This church will hold 2,500 people. I'm going to build, I'm getting ready to build this church five kilometers away from here. The church land was donated by a church member, Pastor Roshan baptized as a child, a beautiful miracle in a time of tragedy. Another miracle that made international headlines might be the fact that Pastor Roshan also forgives the suicide bomber. I forgive the man. I forgive his family because they were all involved. I forgive the group that he came from, the, the group that was planning. My hope is that Sri Lanka will know Christ, know Christ's love. Only the message of the cross can bring peace to an individual, to a family, to a community into the nation. While this beautiful island nation is in deep recovery, Pastor Roshan's wife, Michelle, is reflective. How are you holding up with visiting all the people? It's just the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to, you know, do take one day at a time. Tell us what you sense in your spirit God is doing with this suffering of the church. What we can see with the, what the people, their faith in the Lord is growing stronger. I was personally expecting, you know, people to retaliate with anger, but there is a certain amount, but just a small amount. 
but the peace and the joy that the people know that the ones who have passed away, they are with Jesus, and the people who are alive, we need to go forward with the message of Jesus Christ and his love and his joy that Jesus has given each and every one of us. We hope you enjoyed our look into the beautiful people of this ancient island of Sri Lanka. What you saw was a short version of our journey there. You can watch the full 90-minute special on our streaming service, Castle, at IntoTheCastle.com. For all of us at Context, I'm Lorna Duick. Thanks for watching. <music>